like a wolf through frozen streams and snowdrifts. It is less than two hours. Two hours since I caught up with him. We were in a small grove near the mausoleum gates. He was standing with his back to me next to a tree, the melting snow in the branches dripping down onto his shoulders. His head was bent forward a little to peer into the forest ahead, because the mountain slopes are still a dangerous place to be. The cine camera dangled at his side. I had been following him for so long that I was bruised and limping, my lungs stinging in the cold air. I came forward slowly. I can't now imagine how I was able to remain so controlled because I was trembling from head to toe. When he heard me, he whirled round, falling instinctively to a crouch. But I am not much of a man, not strong, and a full head shorter than he was, and when he saw it was me, he relaxed a little. He straightened slowly, watching me come a few steps nearer, until we were only feet apart, and he could see the tears on my face. "'It will mean nothing to you,' he said, with something like pity in his voice. But I want you to know that I am sorry. I am very sorry. Do you understand my Japanese? Yes, I do. He sighed and rubbed his forehead with his cracked pigskin glove. It wasn't as I would have wished it. It never is. Please believe this. He raised his hand in the vague direction of the Lingu temple. It is true that... that he enjoyed it. He always does, but I don't. I watch them, I make films of what they do, but I take no pleasure from it. Please trust me in this, I take no pleasure. I wiped my face with my sleeve, pushing away the tears. I stepped forward and put a trembling hand on his shoulder. He didn't flinch. He stood his ground, searching my face puzzled. There was no fear in his expression. He thought of me as a defenseless civilian. He knew nothing about the small fruit-knife hidden in my hand. "'Give me the camera,' I said. "'I can't. Don't believe I make these films for their recreation, for the soldiers. I have far greater intentions than that.' "'Give me the camera.' He shook his head. "'Absolutely not!' With those words the world around us seemed to me to slow down abruptly. Somewhere on the distant slopes below, the Japanese Sampohai artillery were laying down heavy mortar fire, chasing renegade nationalist units off the mountains, rounding them up and forcing them back down to the city. But up on the higher slopes I was aware of no sound at all, save the thudding of our hearts, the ice melting in the trees around us. I said, Give me the camera. And I repeat, No, absolutely not. I opened my mouth then, canted forward a little, and released a howl directly into his mouth. It had been building in me all the time I'd been chasing him through the snow, and now I screamed like a wounded animal. I lunged, twisting the little knife into him, through the khaki uniform, grinding through the lucky Senmenbari belt. He didn't make a sound.
His face moved. His head jerked up so fast that his army cap fell off, and we both stumbled back a pace in surprise, staring down at what I'd done. Gouts of blood fell into the snow, and the inside of his stomach folded out like creamy fruit through the rip in his uniform. He stared at it for a moment as if puzzled. Then the pain reached him. He dropped his rifle and grabbed at his stomach, trying to push it back inside. Kuso, he said, what have you done? I staggered back, dropping the knife into the snow, groping blindly for a tree to lean against. The soldier turned away from me and lurched into the forest. One hand clutching his belly, the other still holding the camera, he went unsteadily, his head held up with a peculiar dignity, as if he was heading somewhere important, as if a better, safer world lay somewhere out in the trees. I went after him, stumbling in the snow, my breath coming fast and hot. After about ten yards he tripped, almost lost his balance, and cried out something, a woman's name in Japanese, his mother's, maybe, or his wife's. He raised his arm, and the movement must have loosened things inside, because some dark and long part of him slithered out of the wound, dropping into the snow. He slipped in it and tried to regain his balance, but now he was very weak, and he could only stagger in a hazy circle, a long red cord trailing from him, as if this was a birth and not a death. Give it to me. Give me the camera. He couldn't answer. He had lost all ability to reason. He was no longer aware of what was happening. He sank to his knees, his arms raised slightly, and rolled softly onto his side. I was next to him in a second. His lips were blue, and there was blood coating his teeth. No, he whispered, as I prized his gloved fingers from the camera. His eyes were already blind, but he could sense where I was. He groped for my face. Don't take it. If you take it, who will tell the world? If you take it, who will tell the world? Those words have stayed with me. They will be with me for the rest of my life. Who will tell? I stare for a long time at the sky above the house, at the black smoke drifting across the moon. Who will tell? The answer is no one. No one will tell. It is all over. This will be the last entry in my journal. I will never write again. The rest of my story will stay on the film inside the camera, and what happened today will remain a secret. Chapter 1 Tokyo, Summer 1990 Sometimes you have to really make an effort, even when you're tired and hungry, and you find yourself somewhere completely strange. That was me in Tokyo that summer, standing in front of Professor Shi Chong Ming's door and shaking with anxiety. I had pressed my hair down so it lay as neatly as possible, and I spent a long time trying to straighten my old oxfam skirt, brushing the dust off and ironing out the travel creases with my palms. 
I'd kicked the battered holdall I'd brought with me on the plane behind my feet, so it wouldn't be the first thing he saw, because it was so important to look normal. I had to count to twenty-five and take very deep, very careful breaths before I had the courage to speak. Hello, I said tentatively, my face close to the door. Are you there? I waited for a moment, listening hard. I could hear vague shufflings inside, but no one came to the door. I waited a few more moments, my heart getting louder and louder in my ears. Then I knocked. Can you hear me? The door opened, and I took a step back in surprise. Shi Chong Ming stood in the doorway, very smart and correct, looking at me in silence, his hands at his sides as if he was waiting to be inspected. He was incredibly tiny, like a doll, and around the delicate triangle of his face hung shoulder-length hair, perfectly white, as if he had a snow shawl draped across his shoulders. I stood speechless, my mouth open a little. He placed his palms flat on his thighs and bowed to me. Good afternoon, he said in soft, almost accentless English. I am Professor Shi Chong Ming. Who are you? I, I'm, I swallowed. I'm a student, sort of. I fumbled my cardigan sleeve up and pushed out my hand to him. I hoped he didn't notice my bitten nails. From the University of London. He eyed me thoughtfully taking in my white face, my limp hair, the cardigan and the big shapeless holdall. Everyone does this the first time they meet me, and the truth is, no matter how much you pretend, you never really get used to being stared at. I've been needing to meet you for almost half my life, I said. I've been waiting for...